bum bum bottom 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 bum b
it looks like you have the camera right. and you're just snapping photos. Everybody else is just drawing pictures of superheroes and you've got the camera. And you've snapped photos of the actual beings. Mm -hmm. And when you see his work in person, yes, you can see some of the pencils underneath. You can see, you know, the strokes and, and, and like that. I get excited by all that. But at the same time, it also looks very much just like like what you see on the finished product. It mm -hmm. looks like the cover. The painting looks like the cover. And it's 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 uh, it's unbelievable. It looks to me to be a little bit more transparent than it is on the cover. And a little bit more impressionistic. I think that there is some like, I don't know, zhuzhing that goes between the piece of paper and finished image. But um, it's still like gorgeous and shocking and amazing. If you have the Marvelocity coffee table book, you know that the cover is this never ending gatefold where you just keep opening it up and there's like one more portrait after another. There's like Dr. Doom and Mr. Fantastic and Storm and Jean Grey. And all of those covers were on display at the museum, and I think we took photographs of all of them and put them up on our Twitter and Instagram, at CBCC Podcast. But Lisa, did you have a favorite of the bunch? I really liked the Sinister Six-Year-Old panels, where it's like the Sinister Six, and they're fighting Spider-Man, who's dressed as Mysterio, yeah, so and they're good. having this really rad out-and-out -out brawl. But as you go through, you realize that it is just six-year-old Alex Ross playing with his action figures. And I just love that within the context of like celebrating his career as a whole. I just think that that is so incredibly sweet. And also they had the pencils and I love seeing like not even this pencils. I guess you would call them like thumbnails where you kind of plan like out how it's going The concept, yeah. Concept yeah. pencils, yeah. And so anything that had the pencils and then the real thing always blew my mind. Yeah, and uh, what is great about that Sinister Six Years Old piece is how it ends the exhibit and it rhymes with how the exhibit begins with some of his childhood pieces. Right, which he actually includes in the panels like laying on the floor by the six-year-old's feet. Um, I just think that's so sweet. And I cannot get over, like, there was a picture that he drew of the X-Men when he was, like, 14 years old yep. over a picture that he drew of, like, Spider-Man when he was six years old. And the picture that he drew with pencils and crayon <laughs> when he was 14 years old, like, if I drew that today, oh, man. I would never stop scissor kicking. I would be like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It was, like, so amazing and so well-proportioned and colored in crayon. And I'm just like, I do I even have any skills? Yeah, I don't think that I do. practice makes perfect, but also there is some inherent talent there that's unbeatable. Yeah, yeah. So those were my favorites. What was your favorite? Uh, I think my favorite portrait was the Thor one. And I, th there's something about, you know, Thor has Mjolnir out front and lightning's, you know, springing forth from it. And the way that that lightning is then reflected in his helmet as well as his eyes, there's just something like mystical about it. And when you see it in person and you realize it really has not been touched up in any way by a computer, like he gets that all in the watercolors, 
I, I mean, again, I, I use the word like unreal. I mean, it, it just it, it feels unreal. Um, I also loved that next to those childhood drawings were his tryout pages yes. for Marvel from 1990. And he does this Golden Age Daredevil versus Silver Age Daredevil piece. And it, I mean, you know, it's awesome. If again, like you said, if I had illustrated that those pages, I, you know, I would feel pretty darn good. And if I was the editor at Marvel in 1990 I would have hired that person uh that editor did not do that um and he has like a little uh you know paragraph next to the piece explaining why he just doesn't think it works he talks about the stiffness of the action uh and you can kind of understand what he's talking about like some of the springing elements of Daredevil's you know hopping doesn't look as good as it would eventually get um, but it's still like marvelous to look at. According to those little placards, Alex Ross learned in art school to draw from life. And you can kind of tell like, yeah, this pose was taken from a still image. It doesn't like quite look in motion. But at the same time, like I love the idea of curating an exhibit and going and putting on the wall. Okay, this is one of my failures. Take a look at this piece of shit. I hate it so much. <laughs> and it was, and um, you know, if... If the story of my life stopped there, I would be a failure. <laughs> right, know? right, right, right. But it doesn't. There's two more rooms after that piece. I don't know. Like, I, I, I love the idea of someone telling the story of my life and my career and going and starting with like, yeah, she, when she worked at American Eagle, she cried all of the time and everyone was embarrassed, <laughs> but look at where she is now. Well, the Marvelocity exhibit at the museum of the Shenandoah Valley will run through early next year. We're actually partnering with them and psycho cinema at the Alamo draft house in December for a screening of flash Gordon, a film that Alex Ross absolutely adores and we'll be pointing more people to that exhibit uh, that come to that screening. Uh, but also, you know, come to that screening and then go to the Museum of the Shenandoah Valley December 3rd at 4 o'clock. Brad has been collecting giveaway prizes that I think you guys will be baffled that you're receiving. Uh, you're talking about the... Uh, newspapers. The, yeah, okay, the newspapers. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Actual Flash Gordon strips, my friends. Yes! So for today's main topic, uh, we are discussing... Jana and the Impossible Monsters. When the first storyline wrapped up, we had creators Laura and Chris Somney on the show to discuss it, and we knew then that we would need them back when it was all done because we wanted to do a full spoilers conversation about the comic. And I am beside myself with joy at this opportunity because it always... Kills me to do a no spoilers <laughs> interview about a book that I love because that means that there are things that I can't ask because of you guys, <laughs> because of you to but, not ruin your reading experience. Well, what about my conversation experience? But now you can talk about those things, Lisa Yay. and John and the Impossible Monsters today. Today has a new deluxe hardcover edition out from Oni Press. This thing is a beast. If you've seen the Firepower uh, comic hardcover that Image Comics put out, you know, the other series that Chris Somney illustrates, this one is even taller than that one. I mean, this is a tome. And it also has like one of those sleevey things, right? That you can slip it in and out. Well, the slipcase edition is limited to website purchases, oh. which you can do 
link in the show notes. Go over to Oni Press right now and purchase the slipcase edition for 60 bucks. That is limited to 250 copies. Mm. But if you buy it from your local comic book store or Barnes and Noble or wherever, you will have to get the non-slipcase edition. But even the non-slipcase edition, which is the one that we have in front of us right now, is beautiful. Aside from the magical, impeccable content that is the story, this book feels great in the hand. It's not like one of those books you ever get, like, get a hardcover book and you go to pick it up and there's like no weight to it. Mm. And you're like, what is this made of? Mm -hmm. Elephant packing material? <laughs> yeah. And then um, the pages are beautifully soft and matte. And I love the matte pages. Yeah, right? it really makes the art pop. And Matt Wilson's colors really soak well into these pages. And then there is bonus content at the end with like, process art and little tips and tricks including all of the all of the tools there's tool talk where chris talks about the pencils and the inks that he uses it's just amazing but the biggest reason you should get the new hardcover is because it has a quote from comic book couples counseling <laughs> on the back that is the smallest reason <laughs> no it's the biggest <laughs> if you're collecting all the comics that have quotes from comic book couples counseling on the back you need this one also, do a power bomb. Uh, let's see. Let me think. There's like five of them. Bloodstained Teeth, mm -hmm. Volume Two, of course. Damn cursed children. That was our first. And then Monkey Meat. Of course, Monkey Meat. What a weird, wild collection of great comics. We have impeccable taste. Joking aside, however, it is an honor to have our little podcast on the back of such an incredible story. Total thrill. And next to Jeff Smith, nonetheless. Yeah, what ridiculous. amazing company. For those that are coming to John and the Impossible Monsters for the first time through this episode, what you need to know is that it's set in a world with a little bit of a pest problem, those impossible <laughs> monsters of the title. And Jonna and her sister Rainbow begin the story separated. And it's a story of sibling relationships, sibling dynamics, sibling love. To me, it's a book about responsibility. When someone is your sibling, what do you owe the universe? What do you owe that person for them being part of your family? And like... Rainbow and Jonna, they're very temperamentally different. They love each other and they take care of each other nonetheless. Even though for a lot of the book to Jonna, it doesn't even really make sense. Yeah, it doesn't register, right? Yeah. Uh, and this book is a deeply, profoundly personal work. You know, obviously Chris and Laura Somney are married, but it is inspired by the relationship dynamics of their own children. This is a family book and you can feel that love radiating from the pages. And also the respect for children's characters like Jonna and Rainbow feel like real kids. They are not. Well, I mean, Jonna's pretty extraordinary, but <laughs> but like they're not wise they're not, you know, they they feel like kids and they're making kids decisions and those kids decisions save the world from Kaiju. Yeah, I love that point, Lisa, because it's not like they're Jonathan Lipnicki from Jerry Maguire, like Whoa. the magical kid with all of the wisdom. Deep cut. They do feel very real despite their unreal or impossible surroundings. And it is also something that we have championed on the podcast before. It is a truly all ages comic, meaning that your parents, your grandparents, your children and yourself can enjoy it. 
it's not just a monster comic without any violence and swears. There is something there that I could pull out of it, that my nibblings could pull out of it, that my in-laws could pull out of it, because we've all read it. Like, this is one of those comics where we've given it to every single family member. Because who doesn't need to hear that message? That message that, like, we're here to take care of each other, and we should be proud of that, and we should really commit to that idea, that idea of like, hey, take care. Like, that's not just a thing that you say. It is a thing that you do. And also, by the way, it is a really rad monster comic. Like, yeah. it began because Chris wanted to draw some kaiju beasties, and he achieved that goal tenfold. And since this is an all-spoilers episode, I will have you know, these beasties, they get punched. <laughs> that they do. So, Brad... What should our listener do if they have not yet read Jana? They need to read Jana. It's yeah. available in a brand new spanking hardcover graphic novel that's gorgeous. It's also available in three digest size trade paperbacks. And then there are the single issues. And they're all available digitally from the sponsor of our next segment, Lisa. Referrals. Omnibus is a modern digital comic book store and reader app carrying your favorite single issues, volumes, and omnibuses all day and date. Just like your local comic book store, you pay per book, but digital. Their focus is on building an excellent customer shopping and reading experience and using novel discovery features to help fans find their next new favorite book. They feature top-tier content and already have many of the top publishers and comics today. So in the spirit of helping people find their next new favorite book, we have our referrals segment. The idea is to give our counselees, that's you guys, further reading on the themes of the episode. Think of it as us sending you to specialists to further your healing journey through comic books. So let's say, Brad... Yes. That you're not all ages. You're a specific age. Okay. You are 17 plus. Got it. But you still want to read about complicated sibling relationships? Allow me to recommend The Umbrella Academy. Oh, interesting. It's by Gerard Way and Gabriel Baugh. And I know that there's like a Netflix show. I never finished the Netflix show because I love the comic that much. <laughs> so those of you who have read Jana know that they are not siblings by blood, exactly. Ugh, that feels like a spoiler, but this is supposed to be an all-spoilers episode. Just do it, okay. yeah. Okay, okay, so Jonna is a found family member, and the relationship of the siblings in Umbrella Academy is also kind of tenuous and bizarre, because there was this weird, spontaneous global event where a bunch of women Seven women, I guess, or maybe a bunch. I can't remember the specifics, but they all give birth at exactly the same time. And this one individual, millionaire Reginald Hargreaves, adopts seven of them, and turns out all seven have superpowers. So they're related by consequences of birth, but not by blood. And also, they don't get along that well. Umbrella Academy is hyper violent, it's super weird. It's like it's like a, the very darkest that mutants get every once in a while, like an X-Men-y kind of thing. I mean, it is the mutants as filtered through Gabriel Ba and Gerard Way. It's just like what you think it would be. It's great. It's great. It's hyper stylized and um, it's a it's a real weird trip and I recommend it. 
So that's an awesome pick. I'm Thank jealous you. of it. Thank 17 you. plus. I love that age. Uh, my pick is also not quite all ages. It's recommended to those nine plus. <laughs> but I feel like you could go a little bit younger than nine plus if you would like. I am talking about. Ooh, actually, it's 12 plus, Lisa. <laughs> so maybe you could go a little bit younger than 12 plus to the nine plus region. I like your I like your age math. It is arbitrary. Uh, but it is a European comic from Wasm and Peters called Coma. Uh, volume one is on Omnibus. Actually, all the volumes are on Omnibus. It is about a young girl named Adidas whose father is a chimney sweep. They're living in this industrial village. It's a little merry Poppins-ish, but with a dystopian twist to it. Ooh. And one day she ventures down below the city and she discovers a system of workers, of strange workers who are making all the stuff going on above ground operate, right? And she befriends one of these workers and the people who, you know, make the most money based off of this slave system uh, don't want people to engage with the below workers. It's a highly charged comic, but also very loving. It has a lot on its mind, but the characters are the central focus of the book. And while it doesn't have a sibling dynamic at its core, it does have a father-daughter story there as well. It is a family book. And I think if you wanted to graduate, if you were a young reader, if you were, let's say, nine plus, and you were looking to graduate to something a little bit more mature, Coma is the book for you if you love John and the Impossible Monsters. I feel like the ages put on books are just as much about selling the book as yeah. they are, like, protecting young children from... Like, because think of how badass you would feel <laughs> as a nine-year-old reading a 12-plus book. It's like, ooh, I'm sophisticated. I mean, that was me, right? Yeah. Like, I was reading Stephen King, I was reading Michael Crichton, and I did feel pretty badass. According to the omnibus little blurb here... Which I'm sure they get from the publisher. The Umbrella Academy is listed as one of the top 10 graphic novels for teens by the Young Adult Library Service Association. But the rating is 17 plus, which means that you only get like three a three-year window to read the Umbrella Academy according to this list for all of teens. Like, I think like sometimes, like you can skew a little bit lower in my opinion, I don't know. I'm not a parent. What am I even talking about? I, I don't know, Lisa. Like, I <laughs> yes, we're not parents, uh, and we had very different childhoods. Uh, I, I tend to feel like you can give kids books that are absolutely above their maturity level, and they'll be fine. But also at the same time, every kid is different. <laughs> Referrals. Nailed it. <laughs> All of these books, including John and the Impossible Monsters, are available on Omnibus. It's like a digital comic book store. Just walk on in, start browsing their shelves, look at all their rad publishers, and start no buying comics. No membership be needed. What's most important is that you read John and the Impossible Monsters right now before you listen to this conversation with Chris and Laura Somni because we spoil everything everything. It's impossible to spoil everything. There are still gems and beautiful things that we do not talk about because it's impossible to talk about everything and also live your own life. Maybe you're a rebel. Maybe the more we say that you shouldn't read it, you don't want to read it. You want to listen to this first and then read it. Do you, boo. 
We talk about the ending directly, though. So yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> if you're a stickler for spoilers, you need to read this comic, and you're going to want to read this comic because it's super rad. And on that note, let's just get to Chris and Laura Somni talking about John and the Impossible Monsters. Here you go. Chris and Laura, welcome back to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us back. We are so excited to have you guys back. Jonna is finished. There are no more issues of Jonna, and it breaks my heart, but also warms my heart because it ended so beautifully. Um, but I want to start start with exactly where we left off at the end of volume one, where Jonna and Rainbow are going off with Saro. And um, we talked about on our last interview how it was so important to have Nomi and Gore as this representation of trustworthy adults. Mm -hmm. And then we have them falling right into the, the trap of an untrustworthy adults. So I would, I would love to start talking about like, what was the inspiration to have this other camp? Well, I, you mean like the, the petrified forest in general, where this kind of underground, you know, yeah, where there's this place that has so, so many more resources and yet they are so much less kind. I, I think, I mean, I think we kind of wanted to, I think we were a little inspired by like Star Wars <laughs> and just the idea, like the, you know, the cantina and just kind of this whole idea that. I don't know that there were all like a a whole bunch of like a whole group of people that had formed kind of this economy and um, had kind of taken, I guess, the monsters arrival as an opportunity to exploit, to, you know, um, kind of show that side of it, too. Instead of, you know, you have the refugee camp where people are being helpful, there's community and all of that. And there's this kind of you know underground there's yeah greed yeah and there's yeah it's the greed and exploitation and just kind of the you know i mean it's it's not a it's not an entirely positive worldview you know just like any disaster any um you know kind of big event like that there will be people who are not using it uh to help or to um i don't know be a positive force in it and i think that we just needed to well, we needed some we needed some danger for Rainbow and Jana that came outside of just the monsters. Um, yeah, I, th I think that was probably it. I don't well, know. And a chance to show that there are monsters that don't look like monsters. Sorrow is like he's the he's a he's the he's a bad, bad guy. Dude, in yeah, this one, he's a in bad dude. Um, yeah, I think that was probably it. I don't know. I just really I wanted I wanted like a Star Wars cantina kind of, you know, feeling where I, I guess that's what it was. I you know. This is, I think, either my fourth or fifth time reading through Jana. And in the past, I've only really read it as like, this is Brad's entertainment. Uh, <laughs> but in the last year or so, it's also become the book that we give to our nieces, nephews, and nibblings. And I've we we have one in particular. Her name is Bonnie. Bonnie. And she really super identifies with Jana, like she's kind of like rough and tumble she is the one like especially when she was toddler age to just run away like she would just she felt very little ties to uh to stay in in the backyard yes and so on this read through i was really trying to think about the book as hmm, instruments not the right word uh maybe tool uh maybe guide maybe i like guide for 
my uh, younger relatives. And this idea like Lisa's exploring of like, you know, it was important for you two to show a functioning, safe couple that there are people out there that you can trust. Mm -hmm. But then there are also people out there that you cannot trust. And is that something you were thinking about? I don't think I was really thinking of it in that more just like antagonist, protagonist. I wasn't really thinking like people you can trust and some people you can't. I mean, that's certainly part of it. That seems to be part of it. But I don't think I was consciously thinking of that unless you were. I think you're giving us more credit than we have to for <laughs> some of this. Well, I don't know. I think some of this is just innate in like our worldview and um, just, I don't know, life comes through and channels through your work I think sometimes and um I think it felt right to have kind of a bad dude in there it's so interesting that it's Saro's wife is the one to betray him and give Rainbow the key because like um to me this is a story about Rainbow and Jana figuring out how to commit to each other as siblings and we oh, see sure. and we see um Nomi and Gore's commitment and then we see a very loose marital commitment familial commitment yeah i definitely think that they serve uh sorrow and joy kind of serve as the you know the counterpoint to all of these other you know kind family relationships that are not without conflict and are not without um, you know, their issues, but that they really do have each other's back. And I also think it says something about, you know, sorrow that if you treat people like that, you know, you're eventually going to, it's going to come back to you a little bit. Um, and I just, I don't know. I really love the idea that she was just like fed up with him. She's just like, oh, this guy, you know, like, why, why am I doing this? And becomes the, you know, the person to, to help, rainbow in that moment where it could have gone very differently um but i think she just was i think she was just fed up with him <laughs> wanted to kind of stick it to him a little bit and we thought that would be kind of a fun dynamic where everyone else is very you know working together and um i guess positive in their relationships with each other to have some some other version of that that shows what happens when you don't treat people well that that's and, they're not going to have your back either there's that moment at the end of that scene where she gets the key and that panel of mm -hmm. rainbow holding the key is one of my favorite panels of the entire story and i also feel like it's such a memeable panel like that feels <laughs> like something that you could use to represent you know uh not just like a victory but like an unlocking of an idea an unlocking of a a a a, a moment in your life and I have found myself thinking about that panel a lot since I read that comic. I love that. Yeah, I like the kind of the quiet emotion there that Chris yeah. that Chris has there that she feels emotional, a little victorious, but you know, it's more just I mean, I even think there's some gratitude in that that it's not just, you know, she really didn't earn it all on her own. Someone had to help her. And there's just a little kind of quiet understanding, I think, between the two of them in that moment that um you know she's ready she's also ready for that next part of the adventure um yeah chris did a great job with that good job chris <laughs> for the last panel on a lot of the issues i tried to make it feel like a freeze frame moment at the end of a movie or end of an episode so there's jana on the top of the frog whale where she's got her arms up in victory and there's this freeze frame where 
Rainbow has the key. There's other ones I can't remember. But the, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to do a freeze frame in a comic, but it's all just freeze frames. But when it's the last one, I feel like maybe that one can sit with you a little more. I'm trying not to use the word key because we've used the <laughs> word key too many times. But like to me, like that's such like an important moment in Rainbow's story because throughout the entire arc of this narrative, we've seen the power uh, dynamic of Rainbow and Jonna really flip. And I feel like Rainbow is really searching for like, what now can I bring to the relationship now that Jonna is like saving me all of the time? Right, yeah, I think that it was important to give Rainbow a tool I mean, a literal tool in this case, but just something that um, made her feel. I mean, she's the big sister, you know, and and older siblings. I mean, not all of them, but, you know, a lot of over, over older siblings, I think, tend to feel protective and, uh, you know, jump in to help younger siblings when when it's needed. And she just can't compete with Jana in the strength category. Um, and I think that giving her something like you know, to that she brings to the table too. I mean, she brings a lot of things to the table, I think, but having that visual representation of it um, was important to keep Rainbow kind of an equal part of the solution instead of just, you know, the damsel in distress all the time. Well, and you were always fighting for Rainbow too, because from the beginning, you always said that this is Rainbow's story. It is Rainbow's story. And I've always looked at it as Jana's because I, I look at it as like, main character anime protagonist where it's like the one with the power is clearly the one who has to be the lead so originally it was called rainbow and jana and as we we're trying to like figure out what the title was it got pared down and then the impossible monsters thing which was just like the subtitle to it and it was just like well let's do the main character is jana and that's she's the super powered one so she gets the title but but Laura, rainbow Laura has always been Rainbow Fight for Rainbow. Yeah, Rainbow. I I mean, I think Rainbow is the main character. And I think that she's the one that not everyone's going to identify with. As you said, you know, there are, I'm sure, lots of readers who see themselves in Jana a lot. But I think for most people, Rainbow is kind of our eyes into the story. And the most of us would be a rainbow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, most of us are not going to be a Jana. Um, so I think that she needs those hero moments too. Yeah, well, I, you, you know, you reminded me of how I used to observe like Sherlock Holmes, right? You know, I would read Sherlock Holmes stories or watch Sherlock Holmes movies. I'd be like, Sherlock Holmes is the dude, you know, yeah. he's so cool. This is the guy. He's the main character. And then later you go, is Watson the main character? And then you just so identify with that. And I feel like that's what John of the Impossible Monsters has already done in our reading experience. Although you were probably like, you were rainbow from the jump. Well, like, so here, like, it was in these last two volumes where I really felt the flip because I am John's older sister, but I am in like age order. I'm a third. And my, my goal was always to be peers with John. Like I, like, I never felt like, okay, I have to be in charge with John. I'm like, I have to be fun enough that my younger sibling wants to play with me. (laughs) So like when I was reading this, I found I'm getting choked up, but like I found myself thinking about Teresa a lot, my older sister, and this idea of me having to come to her less and less. Mm. Mm. Sorry, I just finished my reread, so no, <laughs> stop. Um, no, I mean that's I, I love that people are able to see themselves and their relationships and their family and their siblings um, 
in Rainbow and Jana or in Nomi and Gore or in, um, well, I mean, in the small amount of the father that <laughs> exists in this book. Um, I love that. I, I, you know, I mean, and we wrote this from a very personal place also where we saw the dynamic between our kids, which has, I mean, this book feels like we it happened no a lifetime ago, ago now, <laughs> but our oldest just turned 12 and then we have a 10 year old and a seven and a half year old. So just, you know, the place that we came from where we saw how they work together, how they didn't work together and all of that felt very personal to us. And I just, I mean, I love that people can, you know, see that and reflected back in their own relationships that there is a, I, I hope we created a authenticity to a sibling relationship and to these characters that, um, you know, it's, it's hard in a comic because you're relying on just words and pictures. <laughs> um, but it, it, it is harder, I think, to write characters with some depth and to create emotion um, than in some other forms of writing or other forms of media. But I, that, that feels really special to me that people can recognize themselves or their siblings or their family relationships or their friendships or whatever in the characters that we created. And they'll, this will always feel very super personal to us because it really was based on our kids and their dynamic at the time and their personalities at the time. Um, so hopefully that's why it resonates with people is that it, you know, we stole from them <laughs> big time. <laughs> They're not giving us as much material these days. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> now back in school and they have, I mean, 12 years old, like there is going to be some big time drama coming right down the pike. Well, we, this is the first year of middle school. So um, yeah, that, but it's, it's been interesting to see just even how, you know, when we started this, our oldest two are 21 months apart. So they've always been very close in age and very just kind of a package pair. And that really kind of inspired this relationship. But as they get older and their social groups expand and they spend, you know, they're now at separate schools and all of that sort of stuff, it it does kind of give like a little bit of poignancy to this moment in time that we mind for this book because it really doesn't exist anymore. You know, I mean, mm. they... They, it was the younger two who are more. Yeah, our, our younger two are definitely the kind of the pair now, um, the besties. But it is, it you know, it. I mean, this will always feel, I think, emotional for us, not just that we we brought this out of our own lives, but that we were making it during a very difficult period of time. And, um, you know, like I said, it, it does feel like a lifetime ago in some ways, even though I, I think we were still working on it this time last year. Yeah. <laughs> but it feels, it really feels like, I don't think we finished. I, I, I couldn't even tell you. I couldn't even tell you when we finished the book. It's... I, I wish I could. I mean, every time I feel like it's done, it's like, oh, well, now it's time to approve like the Spanish yeah, I mean, whatever. We're, we're and it's definitely like... still there's still work that's, you know, and with the the deluxe hardcover, um, all of that sort of stuff. So it is kind of still trickling on in our lives. But the actual creative process behind it. I can't remember when that ended. It could have been a year ago. It could it have been in like January. It, <laughs> it could have been 2016. Know. It just yeah. feels like it, it's it's uh it was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse. So uh, so all that to say that I'm glad that you know people feel connected to the characters in the book through their own their own experiences and relationships. That feels really special. Yeah, I wanted to like save this for kind of the end of the conversation, but 
you know, with what you're saying right now, how this feels like it was forever ago, and yet you're still kind of working on it. Here you are talking to us, promoting the hardcover's release, and the like to get the hardcover is such an epic achievement, and it's it's the book that I've been waiting for since it, the first single issue came out. Yeah, I mean, not to like, I, I realize we're biased because we put a well, Chris especially put a lot of work into it, but it's a gorgeous book. I mean, Zach. Oni, like, yeah, it's and it's big. it's yeah, it's like compared to the. I, yeah. I just, think I just uh, yeah, the, it just feels the scale of it, important. the production of it. I mean, it really it feels like an achievement when you get to hold that in your hand. Not that it didn't before, but you know, this feels like the kind of thing that like my kids leave open on the floor. <laughs> you know, they've stuck a, a stuffed animal in as a bookmark and. Um, you know, this feels like this, it has some heft to it and it feels, it feels like a couple of years of our lives yeah. tied up into that book. And whenever you're spending so much time on one project, it's really, it's really satisfying to see it get such a wonderful treatment and to be out in the world in such a, a beautiful package that really does, um, show off Chris's art so much, which, um, the you know the smaller version just had its limitation but this is it's beautiful well I, i'm glad to have the singles because that's what i grew up on that's what i wanted to see it in yeah i'm glad we have the trades no matter what size they are at least they got out into hands but this is this is what i always had in my mind like what i wanted to see when it was done and when we when it showed up uh, we got a, a tracking number from our editor. He's like, do you have it yet? Do you have it yet? And I finally got it. And we opened the box and it was just like, this is exactly what we wanted. This is perfect. This is like, yeah. this is the perfect version it, of it. It felt really good to hold such a, just, so it felt like an accomplishment. Getting this in one big hardcover feels like an accomplishment. The other ones are like, you know, I mean, these are great for handing the kids. They're great for, you know, a lot of reasons, but that felt like, like a, I don't know, yearbook almost, you know, yeah. like at, at the end of, uh, you know, school or whatever, where you can just look back and go, wow, that's that's years that's of my of life. life. Yeah. Collected in, in one place where we can go back and visit it, you know, if we aren't too traumatized. <laughs> it's a totem. It's an artifact. <laughs> yeah, they they did a beautiful job. Zach, especially um, this was, I think, always his goal, too. And um we got a lot of support from him in making this happen. So we're very thankful that it made it to the deluxe hardcover stage. Last time we talked to uh, you, talked a little bit about how much pride of ownership your daughters had in this book. Like, do they still have that pride of ownership or does this feel like such old news to them at this point? Um, our, <laughs> our middle was reading it again just the other day, which is why we only have two oh, volumes awesome. down here. I couldn't find the first <laughs> one. I think I'm pretty sure it's in her room right now. Yeah, I think that they, I think it just kind of became background to their lives now, mm. where it's just a thing that we did, and um, they have copies in their library at school, and so it exists around them, but I think that they feel like there's, you know, Harry Potter, and there's, uh, you know, I mean, I think yeah. that they, we just, we're watching the Star Wars movies with them, um, so I think that it's something that they just... I don't want to say they've moved on from, but you know, it's, it's like anything that they've loved. And then, you know, you tuck it away and you go on and, it, and enjoy other, other stories. But I do think that it's still pretty special to our middle daughter, who is of course our Jana inspiration. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, it's no warrior cats, but yeah, she's, she's an intense warrior cats fan. Um, so that, that is true. We did not compete with warrior cats when that came on the scene. Um, our oldest is a big Wings of Fire fan, yeah, and that same also with our niece. Yeah, the, the I, it is hard to compete with you know ninety volumes of something that is so <laughs> intricate and uh, and all of that. But I do, I do think that there's a lot of uh, pride in them getting to be a small part of it and to be an inspiration for it. Well, and every time there's somebody sick or somebody's drawing at the table with me, it always, it's always, we, we I always get a lot of, with a new yeah. little Jana drawing. Oh. Oh. You get a lot of Jana drawings and, and warrior cats. Yeah, that's super sweet. <laughs> Lots of cats with scars. And yeah, <laughs> there's some intense books. <laughs> Our, I don't think our book is nearly intense enough for a kid who fell in love with uh, Warrior Cats already, but um, well, no, maybe the the third volume gets a little. It gets a little. Dark. It, it does get a little uh, intense. A little dark and very sticky. Yeah, goopy. Very goopy. That's all Chris's. Uh, My childhood trauma. Yeah, Chris's childhood trauma is coming out to play there. Um, I love uh, in the second volume. So there's. So while Rainbow is off trying to like just get some food and she's really like scrapping, Jana is being this gladiatorial champion and she clearly like loves it. Like I I get the sense that um if there wasn't Rainbow, there would be this completely separate story where Jana could just become this champion. Yeah. I think that she she could have done it for forever. Like, yeah, I think she really enjoyed being able to be herself, you mm-hmm. know, and, and being able to. Um, I mean, clearly the crowd cheering was uh, enjoyable for her. I just think that that was kind of a moment for her where this is her true self, too. And getting to uh, be in front of people and to express herself the way she wants to express herself and be as rough and tumble and, you know, uh big as she can be was was her you know I mean she wasn't constrained by normal people who you know couldn't take a punch Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she she wasn't in I mean I guess it is dangerous but it just kind of felt fun to have something where she really got to show off um who she was and what she could do and the full scope of her her power and like silver age egotistical hulk she's like Hulk is the strongest there is, you know, and she's just like, she takes, I mean, there's joy, yeah, there's joy in, in having that kind of strength for her, I think. And, um, and being such a little package with such a, a large, um, large power behind her. I, I do. I think, I think that was fun. I, I enjoyed, but also just the aspect of all of these people who are, um, gathering to, I mean, I don't know that the monsters enjoy it, but I mean, <laughs> I think that she certainly uh, found a moment where uh, she en- she enjoyed herself very much. And maybe without Rainbow, she would have just been content to stay there and fight monsters. Yeah, that that, that would be our like 50 volume manga yeah. version of Jana. <laughs> just, just a new monster <laughs> yeah, every time. Lots of punch in. That true self uh, is one of the like most compelling aspects of the book. And you know, when you see her in that moment and she really is reveling in it, you know, you're like, oh, this is this is this is it for her. And then you and we've mentioned in the introduction to this episode that it's full spoilers, but now we're getting to like real spoilers. So if you have not read the comic, 
please stop now and come back after you do so. But towards the end of the series, we learn the origins of Jana, and we really start to explore what it means, what her true self is. And when she gets a hint of that, that's also quite terrifying, and she wants to run away from it or reject it. Um, I guess the question there is, that true self side of Jana was that right there from the jump in the creation of this story? I mean, she was always... She was always a monster. Yeah. She was a monster mm-hmm. from the beginning. Yeah. Um, just a monster in a human form. Yeah. How we showed it, I think, changed and evolved. But for sure, we, we finally got there. It just took a while to... All of it took a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that... The, there was different the, ways we were going to reveal it. There was always like well, opening. Very early, she was like a space girl or something, right? No, their mom is. Okay. Well, th- I think very, very early there was, I don't know that she was, was she actually a monster from the very, very, like the the t- 2014 days? 2014 <laughs> and the two boys. Okay. Well, so <laughs> some things did change. Um, but yeah, she she was always a monster. And we always knew that she would have to kind of discover that about herself because she didn't, she doesn't know that at the beginning of the book. Um, you and know, it was going to be like she opens a bloom and it was a bunny inside, and the opening of the bloom it was like a different thing. But it, did we not? Yeah, we no, did that. No, no, we did that. no, no. We ended up doing uh, the no oh, the red monster. We did red from issue one, yeah. and then the, the next one was the frog monster from issue like four. Yeah, this idea that that these monsters were being created to kind of mimic what was already around in the environment so that they could be a little undetected because they don't start out so giant. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen right away. Um, and Jana mimicking, you know, a person. Um, yeah. She was, she was always meant to be a monster, but like the good kind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of the most powerful moments is from the end of the book where we see Jana's dad pick her up out of the flower and that knowing that she was raised by someone who knew she was a monster the entire time was such a touching moment to me yeah I'm trying to find that I I wish there had been more dad stuff in there I think that um you know the the constraints on what we could do but just seeing that you know I mean that's that's really I don't want to get choked up but that's parenthood you know I mean you you don't always choose well, you, you don't choose your children, you get the children you get and you raise them to the best of your ability. And, you know, they all have their strengths, they all have their weaknesses and they're all individual people. And just, you know, knowing when you make that commitment that you're committing to all of, all of that, you know, you're not just committing to the good days and the, the happy moments and the smiling photos that, that there's, you know, there's, all they're all facets of them that you're going to have to parent and to love and to you know as we transition into our preteen teenage years um you know that that parenthood is really a commitment to seeing it through and to Mm -hmm. being there regardless of um what that child brings with them and you know jonna just happened to bring being a monster Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there are moments i think with every parent you know of a toddler or of a teenager where you think you know whoa (laughs) where did this where did this kid come from um but that that commitment to loving them regardless of you know how they act what they're doing or you know who they are is really to me parenthood 
Well, and it's like the Ma and Pa Camp nature versus nurture thing. Like, what would Clark Kent have ended up like right. if not for them? And there's a little bit of that with with Jana, where you know she could easily have been a terrible monster, but she was raised by well, someone who loved her. And we kind of see that when she's separated for a period of time, mm. where she kind of reverts to that kind of feral monster personality a little bit, where she's not easily, you know, um, swayed by Rainbow to join her, and she's, you know tearing into animals and you know i mean she just really does have that bit of um wildness that was nurtured out of her a little bit um by their father to me this is like that you know as a like i imagine because we don't have kids like as a parent you do make that commitment i'm going to raise you but like for me this story is about Rainbow had made the commitment before Jana had, and this is a whole story about Jana choosing Rainbow back. Where when we first meet them, Rainbow is trying to keep up with Jana, yeah. and it's a- after that championship moment that Jana chooses Rainbow over that glory. And there is one moment Rainbow is all wrapped up in the vines. Jana makes this really, really scary face as she's frantically trying to get her sister out of the vines. And we see a level of like self-awareness from Jana. I feel like we hadn't seen before. Jana sees that Rainbow is upset. And Jana goes like, oh, I was scary. You know, I yeah. was scary. And and Rainbow goes and holds her. Like that's such, like to me, it's just like, it's not a given that you choose your sibling back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I I. Thank you. I, I don't know to say that, but yeah, I think that um, that it was important that they were choosing each other and that it wasn't just Rainbow always protecting Jana or Jana always protecting Rainbow or um, but that their dynamic was a partnership and that they, you know, I mean, the, I I think the best sibling relationships are like that where, you know, you don't have to you, do, well, you don't choose your siblings, but you don't have to after a certain point in time choose to be part of your siblings lives if you don't want to. Um and I think that having them choose each other and uh, fight for and with each other um, was how we envision hopefully our kids will grow and, you know, into adulthood together like that. Well, and that was the, Jonna's eyes could go, the whites would go completely red when she was getting ready to go full berserker mode. And that was the last time that she did it. So it was, mm-hmm. it was like she made oh. a choice, not just for Rainbow, but to not embrace that monster side of her anymore like she can use her power she can use her strength but she chooses not to go full on i didn't know chris did that yeah (laughs) (laughs) go that was good i didn't know that was i I didn't realize that and that was my note for matt like don't color rainbow or don't color jana's eyes red anymore oh yeah i remember that note yeah yeah she's she's more human than monster um at some point because the flashback or the dream that rainbow had about the giant giant right. her eyes were full-on red and there's no more pupils there's just stripes yeah um that was what she could have been and then instead and, yep and instead she's a sweet little weirdo sweet little weirdo <laughs> like this story being based on your daughters you have like in the forefront of your mind the examepleness mm-hmm. of these characters um and the idea of like 
you know, we want to create characters that are flawed, but also emulatable. Like mm -hmm. it has, is that something that you found in your other work? Oh gosh. Um, working on John is like a totally different animal mm -hmm. than anything else that I've done before. Just like the way that we created it, the story itself, it's just, I mean, I've been working on firepower for so long and the dynamic that Kirkman <laughs> yeah. and I have, as opposed to how Laura and I work together is apples and oranges. Like I just, I get a full script from Kirkman and I just, you know, I sit down and do it where this is like, we're creating a story. We're building a world. Um, I don't know. I haven't really jumped back into trying to create in this, in the way that we did Jana again, I'm, Laura and I have talked about what our next thing could be, but we haven't like sat down and really like worked you know, and the way that we worked on Jonna. So I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'll, I'll find out in practice with the next thing, whatever. However, this is. Whatever that next yeah, thing is. Yeah. How, yeah. how this has affected my storytelling, my everything. I, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I don't think we as readers fully appreciated just how much time uh, and how much of yourself selves is in this book you, you know you say 2014 and maybe you mentioned that in yeah. our first conversation yeah. conversation you said 2016 so yeah so like hearing like 2014 is like you know where where ideas are being bandied about and knowing that your oldest daughter is 12 yeah and now you were completely different people then and so were your daughters and now mm -hmm. you have this hardcover that <laughs> represents all that time you know practically a decade um the then just the idea I feel of like this should be way bigger yeah it should be bigger <laughs> no no like to me it looks like this is a decade book like it, it makes sense to me treasury edition right. for a reason but yeah i also am like eager for more chris and laura comics sorry but i also and, and i'm so happy to hear that you're you're you're, you're thinking of things Noodling. but i also wonder like it's got to be super intimidating to start again on something well, I think we went into this not really knowing. And I think that sometimes that's the only way to do something is to not know what you're getting yourself into. I don't think we realized like the dynamic of us working together. I mean, we've always worked together in the sense that we run this business together, Chris being an artist and me doing all of the kind of um, admin type stuff and the behind the scenes taxes, not the not fun stuff is my, <laughs> is my side of it. Um, but this was putting us together in a creative way that, you know, we hadn't really truly done before. And I think if we had known that there was going to be a pandemic in the middle of this experience, we would have said, nope, <laughs> no, thank you. We're not, we're not ready for that. Um, so I think now that we understand what it's like to work together creatively while we are also working on other things, raising a family, um, you know, trying to just be people existing in 2023, which comes with its own challenges in and of itself. Um, I think that that has actually kind of slowed us down <laughs> in terms of creating something else, because this did, it really did um, kind of define our lives for at least two years or so, I would say, like in a real way that it was a part of our everyday lives, our everyday conversations. And um, it was a giant commitment to take on in addition to what we were already doing. And I think that we are a little 
nervous to go down that road again, even though I do think that it will happen. Um, and I, we do have a pretty solid idea and a pretty solid, I think there's something really solid there. It's just a matter of, um, I personally was unprepared for the time commitment that this was on top (laughs) of what else was already going on. And of course we had kids that were virtual schooling. We had kids that I was homeschooling and it was just, I'm sure for most people in general, but especially working parents, those couple of years of the pandemic where um, things were not normal were really, it was really hard. Um, thank, hope, I hope we don't have another pandemic coming anytime soon. I mean, I don't really think we're out of this one if I'm being honest, but yeah. um, you know, I hope that that the next few years feel more like pre-pandemic years than they have uh, for the last few years. But I, I do think that had we known what we were getting ourselves into, <laughs> this book would not exist or it would exist just as Chris's project, but it wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have been, um, you know, we have a tendency to just go like, yeah, let's do it. We'll figure it out and just jump headfirst into things. And now that we know what's at the end of the jump, um, it's a little harder to take it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm really proud of what we did. Yeah. I'm glad that we did it. Uh-huh. Um, but if there was a lot of time, it, it percolated for a long time. Yeah. And then when I told you, you know, I think I'm ready to pitch this thing. And then we started figuring out the pitch and it was like, you said, I don't think you have it. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know like it was a pitch. But it, it was a pitch, but it wasn't a book. Yeah. Right. So we it wasn't all there. Yeah. And I thought that it was. In my head, I was like, oh, well, she punches monsters <laughs> and then she punches monsters and then they, they win. And it there wasn't to be just a little bit more <laughs> than that. Um and Laura came at it from such a stronger story angle. Whereas I was just like, I just want to draw people punching. And <laughs> she had in in her she has the heart and the she's read more books than anyone i know and she gets this stuff in a way that i don't and i i get superhero comics you know i i can make superhero comics with my eyes closed but that's not what we were trying to do here this wasn't just a punch em up and i can draw emotion but i but Pulling it out of me is harder. And and I'm just a crying, sobbing mess all the time. So my emotions are just everywhere. <laughs> uh, but Laura wears her heart on her sleeve in a way that I just, I, I don't think it shows up in my work the way that it does, the way that she writes. And um, I don't think that this book would be what it is without her. It takes so long to start something. Right. Like my first sketchbook, drawings of John o Rainbow weren't John o Rainbow. It was just like two little kids at the bottom of a ravine and then there's a monster like laying eggs above them. And I was like, hmm, this seems like something. And it's just it kind of grew from there. And it took so long to get to the point where I was like, I think I have something that now that Laura and I know that we have something I don't want to jump the gun and be like, well, hey, right, we should put this yeah. because it's like, oh, well, we still have miles to go. We we just we're really kind of perfectionists, I guess, is part of the problem. And it's really hard. Like once we're doing something, we're all in, you know, and it's I, I think it's really hard to to take that leap there. I do have some other things that I'm doing 
in the moment that would take time away from that kind of project. Um, but there's definitely something there. I just think that, um, you know, I mean, projects like this that are personal that, you know, you put a lot of yourself into, they just kind of, um, they deplete you a little bit and that's not to say in a negative way. Um, but, you know, being creative at a time where you're also balancing the needs of family and children and school and, um, Oh, and we took this on when we were like, Oh, well, we'll make it work. Cause it's only like two jobs. And then suddenly it was like the busiest time of my career Yeah. in addition to the <laughs> pandemic, in addition to like all the other stuff, it's just like, whoops, you know, like we just kept saying, like, well, six months ago, we knew there was going to be a yeah. pandemic. Like, why we wouldn't have done this yet. But it it does. I, I'm really envious of the people who can just like have endless creative, endless space for creativity. Um, but for me personally, especially with having three kids that are fairly young in age, um, my brain is filled with you know, day-to-day stuff. I mean, we get like 9 billion emails from their school alone. Like there's just so much other stuff that my brain is filtering that if, I mean, if we wanted to do something right now, we could do it, but I don't know that it would be to the standards that we would want it to be with everything else going on. So we've got an idea that's percolating and there's another thing that I'm working on. Um, and well, I it think it'd be that, really easy to just be like, well, let's just do a quick follow up. That's like, you know, just <laughs> one off. That's like a whatever. But I don't want to just do yeah, whatever. I we don't want that either. We, we, yeah. want, we want perfection, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think we are really hard on ourselves, though. And I think that we tend to want to do the very best possible version of something. And um, that does kind of uh, just you have to rejuvenate before you can get that back um, after something like this, that if if the pandemic hadn't been there, I think we'd already be on our next project, but that really kind of, <laughs> really kind of um, made something that was already really involved and time consuming and all that just feel a lot harder. And um, I definitely want to get to the place where we're back working together on that, on something, because I do, I mean, I'd be an idiot to say that I didn't want to make another book with Chris <laughs> and that, you know, I, I do think we created something special together because we have such a close relationship. Um, and that, I mean, he does what I tell him to do. So he listens. Well. Um, but yeah, that it'll, it'll take a little bit of time before, um, my, my brain has space for creativity. And I think before Chris is willing to, you know, turn marriage back into creative partnerships. So, well, as you know, uh, as a fan of something, as a fan of Jana, when we were reading that last issue, uh, it, like a stress is like before you even open the cover, like there's a stress there. Like, well, how is this all going to come together? How's this going to end? And the way where you take that story, there's a moment where like I was really devastated mm -hmm. and then you offer a little hope just in the last few pages of like the literally story. like the, the last panel yeah 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 and was that I always well so I always wonder if when you get as those last two pages when you get a, two pages like that in a, at the end of a story if that is a, a creator going like well we can't do what we originally wanted to do yeah yeah <laughs> um i you know i think that uh well first of all for like the last two pages the coda that's on there that's all credit goes to zach our editor who 
was like, we need like a post credit scene um, because originally that was not in there. And I, I felt like this book is kind of hopeful and it is, you know, joyful and it is happy in a way. And I, I don't think we wanted to leave it ambiguously at the end there. I think we wanted to, you know, give Jana a moment to, for people to, I don't know, feel happy. And, um, well, and the post credit is so smart. It was also yeah, real fun to draw, Yeah. but in my head, it was always just going to end with like, like studio Ghibli where everything, like the water comes back <laughs> to the world and everything. Yay. Everything's good. And then we end it with Jana, like issue one. And I was like, Oh, that's it. We're done. And Zach, after we'd already done the layouts and the book started ballooning from 20 something pages to, I don't even remember. 30 how many. something. Yeah. yeah. It's like 36. I think um, he was like, you know, it'd probably be a good idea if you did like two more pages. And we're like, what? what? <laughs> two more pages? We don't have two more pages in us. Um, but they were the right two pages. And uh, I don't know. It just, it, once it was, once he brought up the idea, we were like, Yes, of course. Like, yes, of course. This is what feels right to us. Um, and uh, after the credits, yeah, like, as, oh, our, like, yeah, our right. kids are like the kids who stay to watch all through the credits and they love that post credit scene in a movie. And it was it just felt really fun to be able to deliver something like that, that really did kind of in the book so happy. And instead of, you know, it just at the end of it, we felt like we weren't ready to be ambiguous about it, that we wanted to be, um, you know, clear about Jana and where she was and what was happening. And I don't know, it, 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 a happy ending felt right. And at it's some a nice point. bookend because it, the all of her problems started because she chased some creature off into the woods. <laughs> and then there's a giant monster pandemic. And then we end the book with another happy shot of her doing, you know, multiple actions throughout one spread. And it's a happy thing. But yeah, yeah the, the end, I feel I it made me feel really good to create it. And that in turn, we hoped other people would feel really good about that. Just ending it before the post credit scene felt it felt unfinished to us, I think, in the end. But that was where it was originally going to end. And mm. without Zach, it might have, you know, we were tired. It might have just ended <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, but he he was the one who who brought that up. And then once he said it, we were like, yeah, of course. Of course, that's what we have to do. Um, and it was, I mean, the, it's just, Chris was obviously having a lot of fun with that. We just need to have like a production babies. Yeah, <laughs> there were no production babies. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, it just, anytime that Chris gets to just really have fun drawing something I feel like is always worth including because that transfers so much I think to when you're reading it and that was one of those sequences where I think Chris's joy at the characters in the book and all of that comes through so I'm I'm super glad that we did not end it and I just kept I wanted to not disappoint people I'm going to be honest like after sure. our conversation I just was like oh are we disappointing people like are people going to be upset <laughs> at this ending well, and every time we were working on the last issue, you would be like, are Brad and Lisa going to like this? <laughs> I, I was seriously concerned that we had created a book that was going to disappoint anyone, but especially you guys, because you guys oh, no. were so kind about it. And last time we talked, you were like, I don't know how this is all going to wrap up. And I was like, ah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think we tended to create most of the book without that in mind and just kind of following where we felt like the story, you know, needed to go. 
But at the end, I think we were very aware that people were attached to the characters and that, you know, kids were reading the book and that we wanted it to feel hopeful and joyful at the end. And hopefully it does. It does. It, it does. does. It does. Yeah. Our hearts uh, owe Zach a thanks. <laughs> yeah. We well, all owe Zach a thanks. He's awesome. <laughs> like going back to the idea of the book being called Jana and like going back to the theme of like, you know, what is your responsibility when you're family to somebody like, and so like, like to me, like this book is about like making sure like, Hey, we've got this weird kid. Let's find it's our responsibility as their family to make sure that they have room there's room for that person in the world you know what I mean like so I think that there could be like just as easily a book called rainbow where it's like and this is how there's room for rainbow in the world and every every child could have a book of and this is how we made room for you in the world I yeah I love that I love that at the end Jana still gets to be herself Mm -hmm. she's still running across rooftops she's still um, you know, she is still fully who she is now with an understanding of who she really is. And um, I I love that idea for everyone that there's a place in the world for everyone and that, you know, hopefully our families are helping to create that space for us. Um, but that it are, it is our, I mean, it's a joy to be who you are in the world and to be fully yourself. Um so I love I love that for Jana at the end that she's you know she, no one's reining her in she's still you know she's still being Jana um, there's just no giant monsters to to fight in the meantime at the end they're they they're friends with the monsters like the monsters were only bad guys because the bad guy made them like that felt like a real like Pixar Studio Ghibli thing yeah, to do yeah. just like they're using them to like transport goods and they're on the backs of monsters and they're just like. Like Jana is a monster, but is good. And there's no reason that all the cool. other ones couldn't be too. They're just like, they're just big, weird creatures. And I like the idea of the being harmony at the end. You know, I mean, this is a world where, um, you know, the people are very in tune with their environment and they're all living in a way that's kind of peaceful and um, helpful and harmonious with nature. And I like that at the end, it kind of not only did the green return and not only did things become normal again, but these monsters that were there before have been kind of incorporated into, you know, their lives in a way that is helpful and, you know, everyone is benefiting from. So that, that felt good too, to kind of bring it back full circle. Yeah. Sorry. Looking at that spread today, the, the wave that Jana gives to red, the, 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 the monster, in the distance uh, like that, I, that's what I zeroed in on today. And I was like, oh, all is right in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's nice the things that we can't always do in real life. We can do in in fiction or in media to create something hopeful. And, um, you know, it may be unrealistic, but I don't know. It made me feel good. <laughs> and uh, I, I just I I think there's a lot of media that takes it in the opposite direction where we're seeing just the worst of the worst. And that stuff, especially over the last few years has been harder for me to consume. And so I love the idea that, you know, there is something positive at the end of all of this for the people who stuck with us to issue 12. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would want to cover in some way? Um. 
No, I well, yes, yeah, actually, there is. I would just like to thank both of you for not just your enthusiasm for our book, but just your place in you know in comics and just how wonderful it is as creators to see other people just bringing such positive attention to comics in general and to, I mean, of course, specifically our book, that feels really good too, (laughs) but we just really appreciate what you guys are doing and um, the excellent questions that you ask and the guests that you have on and just kind of, you know, your, your place in, in the industry is really important. And it can often feel like, you know, it is really hard to, put a piece of yourself out into the world. And that was something that I was unprepared for. Chris has way more experience at this than I do. Um, But I was unprepared for what it felt like to, you know, work so hard on something and then have someone be negative or dismissive about it. And my skin's gotten much tougher over the years. Um, But, you know, we made this and it came out at a very um, difficult and vulnerable part in our lives. And, you know, we just appreciate you guys. We appreciate what you're doing. So thank you for that. Uh, well, It's coming directly from our love of this book well, and comics you. in general. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's that's a thank you. That's that means we're everything. Take all of that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just we're not. We're going to put it at the beginning and at the end. <laughs> it, it, it really means everything to us that you would say something like that but also your support before during and after our talk it's not just something that you were like oh hey we're talking to these people here's the episode and then you move on like you are genuinely into the book which i mean a lot of times it's just like hey do you want to be on our podcast and like that's it like the it begins and ends with a podcast and then you don't really think about it anymore but you guys have supported us all throughout and anytime a new issue comes out or a volume, like you, if anybody yeah, asks it, you like, hey, we read this book, you guys were right. We liked it. You were always like, well, supportive of us. And it's in a way that I don't see typically. Well, and I, I think I speak for every creator whose work you talk about um, and are enthusiastic about, but it just, it goes such a long way in keeping us creating and in keeping us, you know, engaged because it often feels like this is work that is done in a really solitary way and it's not out into the world. And, you know, you don't always hear, sometimes you don't hear anything. Sometimes you hear negative things. Um, but just having positive, you know, just feelings about your work out there that you guys are sharing with people. I think any creator really feels thankful for that. So, and you guys, you guys do it with everything. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Every book that you, every time you have on. It's and great. we're doing it so selfishly. These are the <laughs> these are the stories that we want to see in the world, and so we we advocate for them. But like, well, thank you. I mean, Jana, you know, there's a. I mean, this is weird to say to the creators, <laughs> but it's one of the best comics I've read oh. that we've read. Yeah. Period. And the level of understanding, um, like to express to Brad as an only child. Okay, this is what siblinghood is really about. This is what it looks like. Here's how it operates. We've been talking about sibling relationships nonstop since we started reading Jana. And I also think that Jana coming out when it did, as challenging as it was for you to create in the pandemic and what a nightmare it must have been, was also <laughs> like the book I needed. You're talking about how like reading and watching apocalyptic stories in the pandemic is too much. Uh, And you can understand why some people gravitate towards it. And, you know, misery loves company and all that. But I found when I encountered those stories, you you encountered them all the time. I found them truly depressing and suffocating. And Jana 
is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. It's addressing all that stuff and it's addressing the disconnection between humans and the connection between humans and the the terror of a, an event like this. But it's also saying that the hope is in us yeah. and is in our family. And, and that know, we have to look out for each other. I needed this book as much as I needed anything in the last couple well, of years. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I became a romance reader over the pandemic because I needed the happy <laughs> ending. Yeah. And so I, I really identify with that, just needing to um, just have a, a another perspective other than what we were being shown all the time and the world yeah. around us and media and stuff like that. So um, I definitely, you know, I'm I'm glad we got to write our own happy ending for this. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, we do. We really appreciate your support and just not just for us, but for creators in general who um, really do thrive off of positive, you know, comments about their work. And um, it does keep you going when it feels hard. So thank you for that. Yeah. Our pleasure. Yeah. Our pleasure. Really, truly. Um, okay. Now I'm going to wrap it up. Let's do it. <laughs> right. uh, here we go. Right. We have links in the show notes to where they can find you and where they can find this book. But just in case they don't look at those precious links in the show notes, can you tell folks where they may be able to continue this conversation online? Um, I'm just Chris Omni on, uh, at Chris Omni on Twitter and Instagram. It's C-H-R-I-S-S-A-M-N-E-E. And I'm Laura underscore Somni on Instagram. And really, I'm the world's worst uh, social media person. So unless you like poetry and the the images from my morning walk, there's not much there. That's what Instagram is for. Well, <laughs> I feel like I'm not doing it right. It's harder as a, as a non-artistic person to make uh, Instagram work for you. But yes, Laura at under, Laura underscore Sami. And thank you for talking to us. This is so fun. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Until next time with Jana uh, part two. <laughs> sure thing thank you and there you go as promised the ultimate jana and the impossible monsters conversation over an hour with the somnies we are incredibly grateful also it's hard to take compliments, Lisa. I know. Good thing I have terrible <laughs> self-esteem. <laughs> they said so many nice things. Imagine if uh, I let that go to my head. Luckily, my self-esteem, I'm about breaking even and it feels great. Having recently re-listened to the conversation, one of the moments that stuck out to me was this idea of... What do you owe your family? What do you owe your sibling? That's a question that you put out there. You know, this notion that you have a responsibility to make space in the world for your siblings, for your family. I really loved that. I think what I was grappling with in this conversation is the idea of when you get married, you go through this whole process of choosing someone and then you have a big party and you invite everyone and you make promises in front of everyone. But like when you become a sibling, there's like just like an introduction, like take Rainbow and Jana. Their dad found Jana in the forest one day, introduced them and said, you're sisters now. And if Jana had made a left turn instead of a right turn, they would have spent the rest of their lives strangers. Like what makes a person a sibling 
is like arbitrary. You know what I mean? Like you're brought together by like randomness. And the fact that it can be this enriching, enduring relationship that can deepen and color your life is just like so magical and poetic and weird. It's an introduction that becomes a bond usually early on that you then hold as sacred and what does that mean as you age? And what do you owe that bond as you get older and become different people and sometimes very different people? Yeah, because like you would love your love for your sibling to be unconditional, you know, but that can't be the case. There are some people who might be in your family who are just not safe people. Right, right. But that's not what Jana's really yeah, exploring. But to me, it's like, Every day, Rainbow and Jana remade the vow to each other that they are siblings. Yes, yes. And that's the thing that's beautiful about siblings. is like, you can make the choice to be strangers, but you choose to be family every single day. Yeah, yeah. And I like how Laura phrases it as this little bit more of this hopeful idea of there is space in the world for everybody, but sometimes that person can't see that space or find that space, but your family member can see it and help carve it and help point you in that direction and make way and also maybe even construct that space. Yeah, like, um, you know, my siblings taught me what belonging feels like. You know, they also taught me what uh, teasing feels like, and they also taught me what, you know, whatever. That, like, it's it's not always smooth, but it's always, like, there. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a unique relationship that I have uh, an understanding of somewhat as an only child, but I'm also, like, fascinated by it, and I sometimes fetishize that relationship. It's so unique. And I like I try sometimes to go like, well, I had that a little bit with my cousin, mm -hmm. but not really. You know, it's I don't know. I don't know. I'm certainly continually curious about those dynamics. And I think it's why I'm not only attracted to stories like John and the Impossible Monsters, but also the Teenage Mutant Ninja mm -hmm. Turtles, which we covered uh, over four or five or six or now seven episodes on Comic Book Couples Counseling. I, I, it's just endlessly fascinating to me. Me too, because I mean, like. Like, no two sets of siblings are alike. So, like, when I meet somebody else, like, I love knowing someone's, like, birth order. Like, you're, <laughs> like, I'm third. You're second. You're the oldest. What's that like? I don't know. It's just all fascinating. John and the Impossible Monsters has become one of our heart comics. Yes. And I, I do think it's one of the best books of the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it's only more evident when you hold it in this new Oni Press deluxe hardcover edition, which is out now, friends. Go on the Oni Press website and gift yourself a copy with the slipcase like a sibling teaches you you have a place in the world. A slipcase Keeps holds a place on the shelf for your book. Okay. Can you, can you see that, Brad? Because like when you take the book out of the slipcase, but you leave the slipcase in, like the slot is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a sibling. I got it. Like a slot. Okay. We already mentioned at the beginning of this episode that we're going to be screening Flash Gordon at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia, at four o'clock on December third. But this Sunday, November fifth. 
We are also screening David Cronenberg's A History of Violence, which is based on the original graphic novel by John Wagner and Vince Locke. And if you have not seen this movie on the big screen with a crowd, you are missing out. It's not a typical body horror film like some of the early Cronenberg movies, but the violence is extreme. It is in the title. And when it happens, man, it can grip a crowd. You gotta see this movie with a crowd. Yes, meet us at the movies. Get gripped with us. Why not? <laughs> and then what do we have coming up on the show next week? Uh, Junie Ba talking about Mobilis, My Life with Nemo, which is also one of the best graphic novels of the year. Gorgeous, brilliant, amazing. And then coming on the heels of that, that one, we might have a surprise or two, but we will definitely also have in November Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Mayleave talking about their new Dark Horse comic book series, Masterpiece. Lisa and I have already read the first issue and had a great time with it. Also, we're doing something new on our Patreon feed. We actually opened a digital shop what? for those of you who can't trust yourself to like <laughs> commit to giving us a dollar and then canceling once you've listened to the thing that you want to listen to there's now a shop where you can just buy like a single episode so on sale for $1.99 each we have opened our Married to Singles episodes. So we have Daniel Warren Johnson talking The Nom. We have Jason Ayers talking Uncanny X-Men number 183. And just recently we had Christian Ward talking through Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth. And I also put up our Todd McFarlane uh, conversation in which he names the 10 best Spawn oh, yeah. moments. Yeah, awesome. But I want to say something about the Christian Ward. Yeah. If you are reading Batman City of Madness and you are loving it like we are, you're going to want to revisit Arkham Asylum and you're going to want to listen to this episode because they really are two books in conversation with each other through time. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. They're like siblings. Yeah. Yeah. So link in the show notes to our digital shop. They are a buck ninety nine a pop. And yeah, I'm excited about that. OK, Brad. Yes. I was just wondering uh -huh. if you knew this very interesting fact. Oh, boy. That the human head weighs eight pounds. <laughs> Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you, Brad? Second Jerry Maguire reference of the day. Uh, listeners, you can find me on most social medias at MouthDork. Oh, man, Lisa. You, <laughs> I've you been holding on to that you like me. literally all day because we started recording this morning, but then I had to go to work. I was like, don't forget about the human uh, head thing. If you'd like to send some, I was going to say, if you'd like to reach out and touch us, I'm not there yet. Uh, if you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool head fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster and our upcoming fifth anniversary poster, what? Send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts, whatever app you prefer. We're everywhere. 
If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. I'm still holding down laughter from the oh, Nikki really? Because generally when I, I say exclusive, you do something <laughs> cute, and I was like, oh no, has he shut down emotionally? I'm just, I'm just dying. Now, here's the part where I say, if you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website comicbookcouplescounseling.com or follow us on all the socials at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yes, please. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Show me the money! <laughs> Oh Christ. You complete me. Oh.